We've been talking about Advent, and as we celebrate Advent this season, uh, we've been looking at the second Advent. Next week, we will begin to talk about the first Advent, which was uh, what was displayed this morning by our children when Christ came to this earth in the form of man. But we've been talking about the second Advent. Advent means the arrival, the coming. And of course, the second Advent is when Christ will return for all those who call him Lord and Savior. Last week, we talked about Revelation chapter 21, and we went through that chapter. And it's a beautiful description of what heaven will look like and of what heaven will be like. If you ever want a description of what, is, what heaven is like, go to Revelation 21. And it talks about the new heaven and new earth that will be created for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Last week, we talked about how uh, the new earth, the new heaven and new earth, and you'll have to go back to the sermon for me to, uh, to have time to explain all of that, and you can listen to that online if you'd like to on our website. But we know this. We know it'll be a new place that's created for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a prepared place. It's a relational place, Revelation 21 tells us. It's a perfect place. It's a place that will fulfill every righteous desire you've ever had. But it's a restricted place only for those who call him Savior and Lord. It's a magnificent place and it's a righteous place where everything is right. You know, um, when I was a child growing up in Louisiana, we had a farm and uh, we had a not, not a very big farm, but uh, it, was, it was big enough as a child, and there were swamplands right behind it. And uh, sometimes after work, about this time of year, my dad would come home, and he would pick me up about 5 o'clock, and we would go out uh, to feed the horses and the cows. And often, uh, it would be whatever, 5.15, 5.20, it would, start, it would be starting to get dark. And I had gone to the barn thousands of times, and I had no fear of going out to the barn. I had no fear of the animals. But when it started to get dark, and I was about seven, eight years old, sometimes he would send me out, and he said, okay, I want you to go out to the barn, and I want you to get a bale of hay, and I want you to put it out for the cows, and then I want you to get three buckets of feed, and I want you to put it out for, for each of the horses. And uh, I'd go, okay, that's kind of getting dark. You'll be okay. You'll be all right. So as a seven or eight-year-old boy, I'd go out there, and it's starting to get dark, and I'd go ahead, and I'd run to that barn, which is about 100 yards away from the house, and I'd get out to that old barn, and I'd get that big hay bale, and I'd drag it over, and then it'd take me a while to get the ropes off there, and I'd get them off, and then I'd spread the hay out, and then I'd go into that, because there were no lights at our barn, okay, because we were like that. And so... uh I mean, this was a barn that was probably 70 years old at this point. My father had grown up on this land, and his father had grown up there. And so I'd get that bucket of feed, and I'd go in there into that crib, and I'd pull that feed out, and I'd bring it, and I'd, I'd rush it around. And by this time, often it would be dark at this time of year, December. And then I'd have, all the animals would start coming up. And I never had a fear of those animals, but when they're coming up in the dark... And so I couldn't wait to get out. So I'd run to the gate, and I had to make sure that I closed that gate well. Because if I left that gate open, the cows and the horses would get out, and I'd be in big trouble. So then after I'd get that gate latched, often it would be dark. And it's just the moonlight, if there's any moonlight. And it's about 100 yards. And I remember I'd start running. And I'd hear the coyotes and the crickets and the frogs. 
And as a seven, eight-year-old boy, you just start making up things in your head. And often at the end of that road, my dad would be waiting. I'd see that figure, that silhouette of my father, and my heart would quit racing. And I would settle down, and I would know everything was fine. Because the crickets and the frogs and the coyotes can't get me if my father's there. It was a sign of peace. It was a picture of peace. And that's the picture that Christ has for us. It's a picture that Christ is trying to paint in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. In John chapter 13, Jesus has just told the disciples. He's told, he's told that one would betray him. We know Judas would betray him. And he foretells and prophesies this, that this is what, what's about to happen in the next 24 hours. Not only that, <clears throat> Peter will deny him. And he tells the disciples this. <clears throat> in the next 24 hours, just hours away, you're going to desert me. You're going to run. you're going to leave. It's going to be a desperate, lonely, and dark, dark place. And with that background, Jesus quotes this scripture to his followers right here in John chapter 14, verse 1 through 6. Do we have that for the back screen by any chance? Thank you. Let not your heart be troubled He's telling this to his followers, knowing what's about to happen, knowing that he's about to be put on trial, knowing that he's about to be beaten, knowing that within 24 hours he will be nailed to a cross. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, the first thing that we see is that there's a person There's a person in whom we can put our faith and trust. There's a person in whom we can have our hearts believe in. Jesus said, believe in God. And by the way, this is an imperative. Believe in God, then you believe also in me. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. I am God. So there's a person named Jesus Christ that we can put our faith in. And in my Father's house are many rooms. Secondly, we see there's a place. There's a place. If it were not so, I would have told you. Sometimes translators will translate it, there's there's a mansion. The room simply has this picture that there's a place that you're going to go to that is one of which you have anticipated, one in which your heart longs for. When I was growing up at the same farm, I remember after I got older, I'd be 12, 13, or 14, and we had horses, and I'd ride those horses back in the swamp. But sometimes I'd be coming back, and again, it'd be be this time of year, and it'd be dark. And you know how your mind plays tricks on you, and you know the direction you're going. You've been on this trail before, but things start to look a little different, and I'd have this angst in my spirit. And I was thinking, what if I made a wrong turn? What if this really isn't the right way? What if I'm lost in the swamps? But then when I would would see the lights of home, my heart would just rejoice. My heart would be at peace because I knew that my grandmother was in there baking cinnamon rolls for me. I knew that that was home. And the horse would start to kind of gallop and get a little bit more excited. 
And I was on my way home because there was a place for me. I don't know what home was like for you, but if you had a good home, if you had decent parents, there's that nostalgia, especially this time of year, maybe even at Thanksgiving, you think about going and eating and being under your parents' roof, being at home, and and there's a room for you. There's a place for you. It's a place where you belong. And maybe you grew up where you didn't have good parents or father. Maybe you had a very dysfunctional family and you had a dream about what it would be like. And that's the picture, what it will be like, what heaven will be for those who know Christ, our Savior, a place that has been prepared. The Bible says, my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And he makes a promise here. He said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. There's a person, there's a place, and there's a promise for those who trust Christ. And he goes on and he says, you know, and, and Thomas asked him a question here in just a moment. He says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, one of the most important verses in all of Scripture, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He tells him the pathway. I am the way. I'm about to go to the cross. In the next 24 hours, I'm going to the cross. And I'm going to have nails driven through my feet and my hand. And my blood is going to pour because the Bible says there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So my blood is going to be shed on your behalf. That if you would believe in me, if you would put your trust and faith in me and receive my forgiveness, then grace would cover you. You would be atoned. You would be covered. And they're going to place me in a grave, but three days later, I'm going to rise. I'm gone to conquer sin and death. I am the way. I'm the truth, the truth that I can cover your sins. I'm the way, the truth, and I'm going to give you life as I conquer sin and death. That's the way, Thomas. You see, there's a person. There's a place. There's a promise. And there's a pathway given to us by Jesus, our Lord. Now, we've been talking about this place, and there are questions that have come up that people have asked. And I want to take just a moment to answer some of those questions that have come out. One would be, what about the near-death experiences that people experience? Are those real? Are those true? Is that what heaven's going to really be like? Well, let me start off by telling you, first of all, we always want to use the Bible as our main source of defining heaven. And as we read and studied last week in Revelation chapter 21, that's the picture of what eternity is going to look like. What do I think happens when sometimes people have, we've seen, you know, uh, Colton Burba had the heaven is for real. And um, then um, there are several different other writers that came out with books. Evan Alexander, Proof of Heaven. Uh, Sid Roth came out with 10 true stories about people who experienced heaven. Uh, Don Piper, uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven. What is that? Because it becomes confusing because almost every one of them differ to a degree. I mean, they all talk about a warm place and a light and that kind of thing, but 
then they have differences, different things that they saw. And, and what I would say is it's probably just a glimpse of the afterlife. If you went back into the medieval studies and you saw in medieval times as people told stories about what happened, very often it was about something that was very hot and had a lot of fire, okay? And so in each culture we see this happening, but what are those? They were probably just a glimpse, but what, what's a glimpse? Well, it's probably the equivalency of sometimes when people drive through Dallas and they go, look, there's Texas Stadium. They got a glimpse of it. They didn't see inside. They've not gone on in and experienced a game. They don't know what it's really, they just caught a little glimpse. And that's what people probably experience with near-death experiences, just a glimpse. They don't really understand, they don't get a true picture, but they get a glimpse. So what about, what about this? What about the rewards in heaven? The Bible talks about our rewards in heaven, but isn't there supposed to be no pain, no, no jealousy, no sin or anything? How does that work? I mean, am I going to look over and go, your house is bigger than mine? I remember, you know, singing a song. I got a mansion just over the hilltop in that fair land where I'll never grow old. And people sometimes would say, my mansion, I hope my mansion's as big as your mansion. I hope I get a bigger mansion, a bigger house in heaven. How's that work? Am I going to look at it and go, why do I have such a scrawny mansion? You got a big mansion. And then there's jealousy. How's that, how's that possible in heaven? Well, I don't think that's what it's going to be like at all. When it talks about the rewards of heaven, I think it has to deal with two concepts. First of all, capacity, second of all, responsibility. Now, what do I mean by capacity? Well, Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, stated it this way. He said, all the vessels, uh, all the vessels that will be thrown into the sea of heaven will find themselves full. What was he saying? He was saying, regardless of the size of your cup, it's going to be filled. Some may have larger cups because they have come to know Christ more intimately, more deeply. And their capacity to experience even greater joys occur because of their faith. What do I mean by that? Well, look at it this way. Um, I'm not an artist. My son takes art, but that's about all I know. I've never taken an art class. Actually, I'm quite pitiful at it. I can't draw, I can't paint. I can't do anything artistic. I'm pretty much a loser when it comes to the arts, okay? But someone who spent a lot of time studying art, Someone who has a master's or a doctor's degree in art, who studied art, when they see art, they can appreciate it so much more than me. I look at it and go, that's a nice picture. Now, if I go through an art museum, I don't feel ripped off because they appreciate it and they stare at that picture. They stare at that creative art that I don't understand that I just look at and I go, huh? And I go on next. Do you have anything else with bigger pictures? I mean, I... I don't feel disappointed. I don't feel like I got ripped off at the museum. I enjoyed my time, and that was fine. But somebody else may have stayed there hours and hours. You know why? Because they have a greater capacity. Same thing with music. Some people can appreciate classical music so much more deeply, while others might just think, well, that's nice elevator music, but I don't really get it. I'd prefer something with a little more beat. It's because your capacity is a little smaller, if you don't mind me saying that. Okay? Now, do you feel ripped off when you go to the symphony and you think, golly, they're, they're moved, they're crying. I, I feel ripped off, I want my money back. When they hear that rabble, oh, it so stirs them. No, you're going, oh, it's nice, I'm glad you like that. There's the picture right there. Your capacity, the faith that you build here on this earth, the relationship that you build with Christ enlarges your capacity to enjoy him forever and to enjoy 
the wondrous magnificence of heaven. Well, what about children who die? This is when it comes. What, what about children who die? You know, the easy answer um, is simply to say, well, uh, maybe you heard this growing up in the age of accountability. It's not actually found in Scripture. But I think there are several scriptures that talk about, particularly Romans 1, uh, talks about in verse 1, chapter, tw- or chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says that those who have seen the revelation of God, who've seen the magnificence of God, they are without excuse. In other words, they are aware that there's a God. <clears throat> Nature itself has revealed it to them. God has revealed himself, and they've chosen to reject him. And I know a lot of people interpret that differently, uh, but he says they are without excuse. Babies, small children who don't understand, uh, I think there's a grace there that's given. Uh, Moses talks about in, um, in Exodus chapter 32 about those who will be blotted out. Um, it seems to be, at least for God's children, that there were those who recorded in, in, in Scripture, and that they were given this grace and this disposition, but those who chose to reject are blotted out, those who reject the grace of Christ. It's a difficult subject, and I know some have different feelings. I know there are churches near us that would say some are going to make it, some are not. Those who are baptized will make it, those who are not. Those who are the elect are not. But my view of Scripture, and we can argue about this, I think you're wrong, you'll think I'm wrong, Uh, But I think God gives a grace of dispensation, not that we're not born uh, from sin, because we all are, we all have that nature, but because they have not been given the opportunity to respond to the grace or the revelation of God. Now, we can talk about that, I'll take your emails, that's fine, and uh, you can choose to disagree, but I do think the grace of God covers those who don't have the capacity to make a decision. Um, With that said, that's my position. And if you go to this church, I think it would be best for you to at least consider that being a a good option, if not correct. Uh, (laughs) Feel free to disagree again. There are churches right down the road that highly disagree with me. And uh, they would love you. God bless you. Um, What about cremation? What about cremation? You know, my parents were very concerned about this. My grandparents were very concerned about this. And throughout history, we see three ways that that the body is... uh, I'll just say the word disposed of or taken care of when someone dies. The first one we see is through burial. And that seems to be the typical way that it was done in Scripture, but not every time. Uh, Then we see cremation. And uh, we know there were many who were martyred, uh, many who were martyred in faith and who were cremated. And then there there was mummification, where they tried to preserve the body. Uh, The Egyptians, we know, did that. Uh, But really, the Scripture does not really speak to a right or a wrong. Uh, I don't think you need to mummify your body. I don't think you need to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for a casket that's waterproof and that air can't get into and that will keep... You're going to be fine, okay? There's a reason uh, that in the funerals from the Book of Common Prayer, it said ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Hey, look, uh, up until this century, you eventually dissolved into the dirt. That's where you came from. That's where you were made from. That's where man was created from. And so you settled back in the dirt, and at some point, God will call back those who are believers and their bodies will be resurrected in a perfected state and you will go before him and uh, that's going to happen at some point but how uh, what happens to your body in the meantime I I think that's up to you I think God is okay I don't think you're going to ruin yourself if you're cremated and uh, castigate yourself uh, for alternative 
Uh, So what are you at peace with? If you need to be buried in a body, that's great. Uh, If you need to save a little money and be cremated, that's great too. So however you decide to do it is, is fine. Why should I believe in heaven? Why should I believe in heaven? You know, it's very interesting to me that pretty much everybody believes there's, there's something. Even Rousseau, the French philosopher, said, um, uh, he said, I think it's ludicrous for anyone that says that they don't believe or they don't fear death. For all men fear death. Well, that's true. We all have a certain fear of death, and even the atheist, agnostic, everybody, if they're honest, has a certain fear of death, and it's not because we're afraid there's nothing else, or it's not because we're afraid that that's the end and that that's, annihilation occurs and that's just the end. It's we fear because we're not sure there isn't something else, because we're afraid there might be something else, and we're not prepared for it. So, all through history, people have always believed that there's something more. Why should I believe? Well, number one, because Jesus believed in heaven. He tells us right here in John chapter 14. Number two, the apostles believed. The church fathers believed. The Bible tells us that it's our authority for life. If you were to trust the word of God, that tells us that there's a heaven. We know that our desire, as C.S. Lewis speaks of, the natural uh, response to why we have such a great desire to be somewhere else is because we were created for somewhere else. And last but not least, because of justice. Uh, The Bible says that all will stand before judgment. Those who are believers in Christ before the behemoth seat those are not before the great white throne of judgment to give an account for our lives, for the sin. It's what Scripture teaches, and if you think about it, it's what makes sense. You say, well, what about Hitler? And we go on, what about Mussolini? We come out with all these, what about Ted Bundy? And all these people we come up with in our minds. And if you live a life and you get away with it, those who get away with atrocities in life, if there's no justice I believe there will be justice in the final analysis. And that's another thing that scares us when we think about the afterlife. But what does the Bible teach us? What do people think? Uh, What do people think about what's going to happen next? Well, some people take uh, the agnostic approach and they would say, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen next. We have no idea. Maybe there's a little fear because I don't really know. Uh, Are the universalists close? Everybody will be there. Good, bad, ugly, we'll all be there. Um, Or maybe the egocentric approach. Uh, People who are good like me, good people will be there. And I am the standard. Whatever I am, that's what it is. People as good as me or better will all be there, whatever I am because that's the way it makes us feel better. We all think we're good people ultimately, and the standard is us, us and anything better. The truth of it is the Bible says we're none of us are that good. Matter of fact, if I talk to your family, they'd probably tell me you're not that good either. Okay? So you don't want to get on that, you don't want to get on that road. What about um, the kind of church I go to? People who go to the same kind of church as me. If you go to my church, or if you go to a church like mine, maybe, you know, 
I'll tell you who's going. The Church of Christ are going, or the Pentecost are going, or the Baptists are going, or the Catholics are going. Those, those you know, people who are like me. People who are in my type of church. Not what the Bible says, by the way. You know, they weren't really denominations back then, but they were kind of like that. They were groups called the Zealots and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus didn't give any of those groups a blessing. He talked about the individual faith that they were going to have to have and how, how they were going to respond to the Word of God and His grace. Some would say it's the sacramental answer. Have you been baptized? Now, I think baptism is very important. I do. I think it's a sincere sign and picture of the covenant commitment that we make to Christ and Christ makes to us. So I think if you trust Christ, you will, you'll be baptized. You'll want to do that. But just simply getting baptized as an infant, that's not it. If, if, if that was true, then we should just go around spreading water everywhere we can for every child we can. If that's all it was, it's the equivalent of the picture. You know, it's the picture of the marriage um, just like when I got married, my wife gave me this wedding ring, and so it's a picture of my commitment. doesn't mean I'm committed. doesn't mean I've made a commitment. It's just a picture of that. And if we really believed that everybody that had a wedding ring was married, we could just give our children wedding rings. Just everybody wear one. That makes you married. But we know that's not what makes you married. It's the covenant commitment that you make to someone. So what does the Bible teach? Well, I believe the Bible teaches this, people who have accepted Christ's promise. It's a faith decision. That's how we know Christ. That's how we're assured of heaven. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the famous Danish philosopher, tells the story of a, a goose one time who was wounded. And he fell, and he fell near a, a chicken coop. And he ended up living amongst the chickens there. And while he was living amongst the chickens, he soon began to adopt their life. He quit trying to fly except for maybe just a few feet. And feed was brought to him and he would eat. And he began to just think he was a chicken. This was a pretty good life. He didn't have to work too hard. He was able to just stay there. And he just adopted the life of a chicken. But then one day, as he was walking to get a little bit of chicken feed, he heard this loud honk in the sky and It was a flock of geese that were migrating for the winter. And something resonated within his heart. Something stirred within his spirit. And he thought, I am meant to fly. And he started to take off. He he did a few flaps, but then he looked around and he noticed surrounding. And he thought, but maybe I'll just stay here. Maybe it's easier. Maybe I'm not meant to be with those geese. Maybe that's not really where I'm supposed to be. And he bowed his head and walked away and decided to just be a chicken, even though he was created for so much more. Within your heart, there is a longing for something more, something more than this life will ever be able to give you, that you were created for something better, something more almost, I don't want to say notorious, but something more gratifying and something more fulfilling. And it's because God has created you to spend eternity with him. But you have to make the decision whether you will accept that invitation. Billy Graham, whom I love, tells a story. About 10 years ago, he was invited to come back to uh, Asheville, North Carolina, and he almost didn't go, but he said, you know, I'm going to do this. The Chamber of Commerce, and they want to honor him with this reward. He, uh, dimensions and Parkinson had already well set in. 
And he, he wasn't speaking anymore, but he decided to go. So he stood, and he stood before the crowd. And, and as he closed, he said, um, you know, before I came, my, uh, my family told me it was time to buy a new suit. And finally, I decided, you know, it is a good idea for me to get a new suit. I haven't had one in 15 years. And so the reason I, I bought this suit was to speak to you today. But it's also the suit that I plan on being buried in. So this will be the last suit that I ever purchase. And he said, you know, one day I'm going to die and you're going to hear about it. And I hope that when I die, you won't just remember this suit that I'm wearing. You won't just think about what I wear or what I was wearing. I hope you'll remember this. He was a man who knew Jesus. And he's a man who knew where he was going. He said, I have no doubt whatsoever that when I take my last breath, I will be in the presence of the Lord. Because I have put my hope and faith in what Jesus Christ did through the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So I know the moment I quit breathing, I will be in the presence of God. That's what I want you to remember. My question to you, ladies and gentlemen, today, do you know where you're going when you take your last breath? Have you come to that place where you recognize, you know what, I'm a sinner and I'm not going to be good enough. I don't know that God's going to do the universal approach and just say, everybody come on in and blow the whistle, everybody out of the pool. I think at some point I've got to make a decision. I have to decide either Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the God of the universe with the power to save or he's not. And if he is who he says he is, then I have to deal with my sin because the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All, the Bible also says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I've fallen short of the glory of God. Lord, I'm going to put my trust and my faith in what you did on the cross. Just as you were encouraging your disciples here in John chapter 14, as you said, Lord, there was a person, there was a promise, there's a place, and there's a pathway. Lord, I want to choose your pathway today to one day be in your presence and to start my life as a follower of Christ today. Lord, I want to have a greater capacity to enjoy and to experience everything that you have for eternity. And I want to start today, and I'm giving you my life, forgiving my sins, and come into my heart. Lord, I want to be your follower. Have you done that? I want to encourage you to do that today. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you said, Lord, uh, that you are the way, that you're the truth, and that you are the life. Father, if there's one here today that has not received that truth, the truth that you are the God of the universe, that you have the power to save, that you have the power to forgive our sins. If we will put our trust in you, if we'll transfer our trust from what we think, from what we're trying to do, from our own goodness, our own righteousness, to what you have done for us. And let that cover us. Let your blood cover us. Let your grace cover us. And Lord, let us put our hope and trust in you. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that this morning. Just take a moment to say, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe Jesus. I believe his words. I believe his truth. Lord, forgive me. Come into my life and save me. I put my hope and trust in you. 
Lord, I choose to follow you today. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for the promise, for the place, for the pathway.